Happy Easter, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it's great to have you along for the ride. And by the way, before we go any farther, he is risen. Come on now. Yeah, we have much to celebrate. Um, but to get us going today, what I want to do is make a confession. And the confession goes like this. Uh, as an admittedly right-brained, analytically inclined med school dropout turned pastor, a little bit of a mouthful there, right? I absolutely love Easter. I really do. Uh, and here's why. Easter really is the perfect day for anyone who is struggling with their faith to be in church. And, and maybe this morning, that's you. Like, if you're honest, the only reason that you're here is because someone cute promised you lunch after the service. No judgment, right? Or maybe you're here with your mom because, well, Easter's a really big deal to her, and you know that she would be absolutely horrified if she knew that you were questioning your faith. Plus, let's be honest, her Easter ham and cheesy potatoes are easily worth the pain of listening to me for 25 minutes, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you're here... Uh, in the room or online, and you're in a season of doubt for one reason or another, and you need to know uh, that I'm thrilled that you're with us because with our time together today, we get to explore the one thing that I'm convinced has the potential to do an end run around all the questions that can keep you from seriously considering Jesus. You know, really great questions like, how am I supposed to reconcile faith and science? Or uh, how can I believe in a loving God when the world is so full of pain and suffering? Or uh, how am I supposed to believe in Jesus when so many of his followers do things that make me absolutely furious, right? I'm telling you, if questions like these are causing you to struggle in your faith and you're joining us today, I really couldn't be more excited. Because as I've said, today we're going to explore the one thing that really can bring fresh perspective to your questions and doubts. And that one thing has to do with something that really happened shortly before the sun rose on that first Easter Sunday morning. And because of that something that really happened, the entire city of Jerusalem was thrown into absolute chaos. It's hard for us to imagine, but, but um, I found something I want to share with you. A few years back, there was a movie that was released that I think did an incredible job of imagining the energy of that day. So what I want to do uh, is briefly watch the movie trailer with you as a way to set the context for the rest of the talk. So let's check this The Nazarene city rise again after three days. We will lose peace and order if it's true. Will the people believe it? The weak will. There will be no other gods. Kill him. The tomb is sealed, guarded with your life. Tribune, Pilate summons you. The body has vanished. His tomb is empty. Where has he gone? You tell me. Already they're proclaiming him risen from death. The Emperor cannot arrive to unrest. We must find a body. Oh, no! Come the city for bodies dead in the last week. Take them up. Everyone. 
telling you, it's almost impossible to overstate the drama that unfolded in the city of Jerusalem that first Easter Sunday. I mean, the Roman soldiers who had been charged with guarding Jesus' tomb would have been in a state of panic. Uh, The Jewish religious leaders who had demanded that Jesus be crucified would have been confused and concerned. And Jesus' first disciples, the first to follow him, would have been in a state of shock. I mean, a few days earlier, their leader, the one who they had left everything to follow, had been betrayed, falsely accused, tried, convicted, and crucified. His body had been taken off the cross and wrapped in 75 pounds of cloth. I mean, he would have suffocated if he wasn't already dead. And then that body, after being wrapped, was placed in a tomb that was sealed with a large stone. And that all had happened before the sun had set on the day that we call Good Friday. And by Sunday morning, as far as they were concerned, the story of Jesus was over and they were devastated. Like they had believed that Jesus was the Messiah or the anointed one who had been sent by God to rescue Israel from her oppressors. In their minds, he was supposed to lead a revolution that would overthrow Roman forces who occupied their land and controlled their lives. Moreover, as Jesus' first followers and closest friends, they had anticipated that they would soon be the inner circle to the world's most powerful man. But, but, but then a few days earlier, everything had changed for them. They had watched their leader, their teacher, their rabbi die on a Roman cross. And from their perspective, that wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, God's Messiah wasn't supposed to have been crucified. He was supposed to come and he was supposed to rule. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And then to make things even more disorienting for them on that first Easter Sunday, a few of Jesus' female disciples had visited the tomb where his body had been laid. But when they got to the tomb, Jesus' body was gone. And the disciples had heard rumors that a few people had actually seen Jesus alive again. But from their perspective, that that had to be nothing more than wishful thinking. And so on the evening of that first Easter, Jesus' disciples were hiding in a room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, completely unsure of their next move. But then, in a moment that was as unexpected as it was disorienting. Everything changed for them again. An early Jesus follower named John, who was there in that room that night, recorded the details of what happened in his account of the life of Jesus. Here's what he wrote. He said, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews. In other words, John wants us to know on the evening of that first Easter Sunday when the disciples were terrified that Roman guards could at any minute come crashing through the door to arrest them in a moment when their emotions would have been running high and their fears of what their future held would have been absolutely debilitating. He tells us that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love this moment. I mean, if you think about it, do you know why Jesus had to say peace be with you to his disciples that night? Right, because they would have been freaking out, right? Like they never saw this coming. More than a few of them would have probably had to change their undergarments. Yeah, but see, in this moment, that didn't matter because Jesus was back 
And he wanted them to be totally confident in that reality. In fact, as his account continues, John recorded that Jesus, he says, showed them his hands and his side. It's like, guys, it's really me. The same body that was crucified is breathing again. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In other words, in this moment, the disciples' mood dramatically shifted from fear to joy. And notice that this happened even though Jesus hadn't rescued them from their circumstances. I mean, they were still in the same place, facing the same dangers. Really, the only thing that changed for them was that Jesus was back. And, and apparently, that was enough. Okay, so check out what Jesus told them next. He said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, you guys thought that you had reached the end of your journey with me. But this, this is only the beginning. In fact, you haven't seen anything yet. I I'm telling you, in this moment, Jesus did nothing less than affirm to his disciples that his death and resurrection not only completed something, but it launched something new, something for which they had a role to play. Jesus planned to send them into the world to share the message of what he had accomplished for the world. They were to be his agents. They were to be his messengers. And, and apparently after seeing him alive again, Jesus was convinced that his first followers were ready to enter this new chapter in their story, which is amazing. But as John continued to relay what happened that day, he noted that well, not all of Jesus' first followers were ready for their new mission. Here's what John tells us. He says, now Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I, I need to see this myself. And uh, if you think about it, there's a sense in which, in this scene, Thomas sort of stands in for you, especially if you're an analytically inclined person like me. I mean, maybe you're here this morning, and um, deep down, more than anything, you want to believe in Jesus. Like, you read his teachings, and you think, man, these are so revolutionary, and, and you crave the hope that faith in Jesus can bring. But if you're honest, your mind just can't seem to make peace with the questions and the doubts and so for you to place your faith in Jesus at this point, it wouldn't be genuine. It, 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 it just, it, you just can't go there. And so if that's you, I want you to know that you're in good company. Because one of Jesus' first followers had real questions and doubts that kept him from faith in Jesus as well. And he had these questions and doubts in spite of all that he had seen and all that he had experienced during the three years that he had spent with Jesus. Well, fortunately for Thomas, and I would argue fortunately for us, this isn't where his story ends. Check out what John tells us happened next. He writes, a week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and, and said, peace be with you. That was just for Thomas' sake that time around, right? Um, and, th and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. The same body that was crucified is breathing again. Then he says, stop doubting and believe. It was a powerful, powerful, powerful moment. In fact, I love the way this moment was captured in a painting by a Baroque master named Caravaggio generations ago. I mean, you can, 
you can see the wonder in Thomas's eyes. From, from his perspective in this moment, Jesus' resurrection was simultaneously unbelievable but undeniable. And when, then, when those two things come into conflict, undeniable trumps unbelievable every single time. It was too good to be true, but somehow it was true. And, and so confronted with the evidence, Thomas responds immediately. He looks into Jesus' eyes and he proclaims, my Lord and my God. In other words, I believe. And I'm telling you, it's hard to overstate the significance of this moment. If you, if you think about it, Thomas had personal doubts about the resurrection. And then he responded personally to Jesus' invitation to believe based on the evidence of the resurrection. Okay, so check out what Jesus told Thomas next. He said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And if you think about it, I mean, Jesus is talking about us, right? People who would live thousands of years after his resurrection, people with real questions and real doubts, but people who nonetheless come to place our faith in Jesus, which, which of course brings me to a really important question, and it goes like this. How, how can a rational person believe in the resurrection when we haven't seen it ourselves? We don't have the opportunity to put our hand in Jesus' side and to feel where the nails had punctured his hands. I mean, is there any evidence available to us today if we want to consider the historical reality of the resurrection, especially if, if that's the foundation of the Christian faith? And well, I'm convinced that there is evidence if you know where to look for it. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, if you think about it, since that first Easter Sunday, there has been an unbroken chain of people who have affirmed that Jesus literally physically rose from the grave. Said a bit differently, the first followers of Jesus told people what they had seen, and those people told other people, and then those people told still other people, and eventually someone told you and someone told me. It's an unbroken chain of witnesses. And uh, because the chain is unbroken, if we can trust the first link in that chain, those first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, then the whole chain of witnesses is trustworthy. So, so let's talk for a moment about those first eyewitnesses. I mean, historically speaking, did they become rich as they led the church and proclaimed the resurrection? And I did some digging as I was preparing for this talk, and even the most secular of scholars would tell you, no, they did not become rich as they proclaimed the resurrection. In fact, many of the first followers of Jesus died at the hands of the Roman Empire because of their refusal to deny the resurrection, which, as an admittedly right-brained analytically inclined med school dropout turned pastor, makes me wonder, like, how far would those first disciples be willing to take a lie, especially given the reality that they gained nothing for themselves by perpetuating it and that it eventually cost them everything. I, I mean, historians tell us that uh, Peter and Andrew and Philip and Thaddeus and Simon, all Jesus' first disciples, they were crucified just like Jesus had been. They tell us that James was stoned to death, Bartholomew was beheaded, and Matthew and Thomas were stabbed. And again, many of these disciples were given the opportunity to denounce the resurrection and live, but they refused 
because they couldn't deny what they had seen. They were convinced that God had literally raised Jesus from the dead and that that truth, well, that was worth dying for. I also think it's worth pointing out that these disciples didn't give their lives for something they believed. People do that all the time. The first disciples died for something that they saw, that they experienced firsthand. And if you think about it, even for the most skeptical among us, that is compelling. I mean, consider this observation from a prominent New Testament scholar named Gary Habermas. Gary is sort of the world expert on the resurrection. Here's what, here's what he wrote in a book recently. He said, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. He said the earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced that they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. That's what changed their lives and started the church. And he goes on to say, certainly since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. So that, the resurrection really is the spark that launched the church. But, but not surprisingly, as the news of Jesus' resurrection spread and as churches popped up all around the Mediterranean Rim, a lot of people had questions. I mean, they were a long way from the city where the resurrection had happened and they began to wonder if Jesus' resurrection was more metaphorical. Like, you mean like his movement was reborn on Easter Sunday? And so these early believers, they asked questions back to those church leaders in Jerusalem. And in response to those questions, there's an early pastor named Paul who himself was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And Paul wrote a letter back to them clarifying what they mean by resurrection. Here's what he said. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, like literally physically appeared to Peter and then to the 12. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's an idiom for that they've They've died. He says, and then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, last of all, he appeared to me. But notice uh, that he calls out James. Uh, and I think that's fascinating. James was Jesus' younger brother, which means that James, Jesus' younger brother, came to believe that he was the son of God and the savior of the world. And that is incredibly compelling if you think about it. I mean, I have a younger brother. He's watching this morning. Do you know? What I would have to do before my younger brother believed that I was the son of God. <laughs> right. I would have to come back from the dead. Just saying, right? Uh, anyway, I think it's critical for us to understand that the writers of the New Testament were totally confident that the resurrection literally, historically happened. And they affirmed that they could call on hundreds of witnesses to testify to that reality. In fact, later in that same letter addressed to early Christians in Greece, Paul went to the extreme of even saying that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I'm telling you, whatever legitimate questions you carry about faith and life and God, as important as those questions are, you need to understand there is very compelling evidence for the historical reality 
of the resurrection. In fact, before we land this talk, I just have to give you one more thing that I think you should consider. I first heard this illustration years ago during an Easter sermon, and it has never left me. And the illustration goes like this. Um, if you think about it, there are five reasonable explanations for the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday. And I made us a slide, so you're welcome, right? Here they go. Uh, first, the options would be that Jesus simply never existed. Uh, but, but of course, no credible historian holds to this view. There's just too much evidence to the contrary. So Jesus never existed, really not a good explanation for the empty tomb. Second possibility is that Jesus first disciples stole his body and faked a resurrection. But again, if you think about it, that doesn't make sense because of what we've already noted about how they died. I mean, they were committed to spreading the message of Jesus, whatever the cost. And you just have to ask, like, how far would they take a lie? So that, in the end, is not a very good option. A third option would be that the Jewish leaders stole the body of Jesus. Um, and that is, you know, imaginable, but that doesn't really make sense either. Like, why would they try to restart the Jesus movement a few days after trying to destroy it? So, again, that's not a good option. Uh, the fourth option is that the tomb just simply wasn't empty on that first Easter Sunday. But, but when skeptics have raised this option, and they have, they quickly concede that it would have been functionally impossible for a movement founded on the belief of a bodily resurrection to launch in the same city where Jesus was crucified and buried because far too many people would have been aware of Jesus' body and where it had been laid. Which, of course, brings us to the fifth, and as it turns out, most likely option, namely that God raised Jesus from the dead. Like he really... He really did. And it's no exaggeration to say that that reality, well, that changed everything for everyone. The resurrection of Jesus did nothing less than change the course of human history. And so, uh, as an admittedly right-brained, analytically inclined med school dropout turned pastor, you know, what, why do I love Easter so much because the resurrection of Jesus really does provide us all a way to reframe our very legitimate questions questions about some of the things we read in the Bible questions about God that often arise after we experience a challenge in this life or a loss in this life they help us reframe all those questions in, in such a way that we're actually able to pick them up and carry them across the line of faith in Jesus. Because in the end, as much as I love chasing down the answers to questions of faith, in the end, the foundation of the Christian faith isn't getting all of our questions answered. It never has been. The foundation of the Christian faith is something that happened 2,000 years ago when a crucified man wasn't where everyone thought he would be because God literally raised him from the dead. It's no exaggeration to say that for all of us who believe in that moment Jesus became our living hope. How great the cat
you pray with me? Father, we gather in this place because 2,000 years ago, everything changed when the body of Jesus was not where everyone expected it to be. Thank you for that moment and all it means for all of us that because Jesus lives, we too will live after we pass from this life. We stand in awe of your goodness. We stand in awe of your love. And I ask that uh, we are able to carry a bit of that hope into our world this week. For now, for this moment, we just say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that is in his name. And it is in that name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. It has been good to be with you, friends. Happy Easter.